Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everyone. Thanks. How is everybody today? Very well. Good. I'm glad that they all, you know, elected you to represent them today. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, hope everyone is doing all right. It's a beautiful morning, Sunday morning. It's a little chilly, I think. Ada wasn't out there that long, so I don't really know. Um, but if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25. Um, and today we're going to be discussing this next chapter. And last week, as we remember, it started Isaiah's kind of a culmination of everything that had come before. Um, the chapters 13 up to 23, we saw how uh, Isaiah was critiquing the world, critiquing the powers of the world, how the world doesn't really offer us any assurance in the end because it always fails. Uh, whether it's wealth, whether it's um, wisdom, whether it is their own vision. In the end, it it's doesn't compete with God. And that's what Isaiah has shown us. And now he's going to show how God continues to reign, how he in the end is the victor, how no matter what this world may present, in the end, it's God who is high and above. Um, and we'll go ahead and look at our maps, even though the maps aren't quite as relevant to us now because we're over the whole oracles against the nations. Um, but it's always good to remember, okay, these are what we're talking about here. With Babylon over here, they're going to become big after Isaiah's ministry. Um, they were taken over by Assyria, who again is the main power. You can see that they have quite a bit of land in the known world. Um, the next slide goes ahead and shows us a little bit more in depth of how they conquered everybody, starting from here in Nineveh and Ashur, and then going all the way out down into there. And then also Israel and Judah at the time of Isaiah. Um, the thing about this is that about soon we're going to see how Israel is going to be conquered and they're going to be dispersed. Um, if that has not already happened, it might have already happened actually in Isaiah's timeline. Um, but yeah, so, but this was how it was. This was the divided kingdom, Judah to the south, Israel to the no north. We always hear about Ammon and Moab and Edom. Those were the neighbors, Philistia, the Philistines, Tyr, um, Syria. All of these are the major players, especially for Israel and Judah. Um, all right, and so now we're going to come on to our verses for today. We're going to start with verse 1. We're going to go to verse 5. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city of ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. So we now find a response to the previous chapter concerning the destruction of the city, which, as we remember, was humanity without God. As such, Isaiah first proclaims God to be his God. This is a personal relationship between God and Isaiah, the person. And knowing God, Isaiah is able to praise God as God deserves. Indeed, the knowledge of God is seen clearly as Isaiah rejoices in what God has accomplished. It is not a blind faith which guides Isaiah or any of the prophets. Instead, it is faith rooted 
and what God has done and his accomplishments. This has a connotation of things he has actively done. But Isaiah shows it further in that he also does what has been planned. When God purposes things to be, then they will be. In particular, Isaiah considers the destruction of the city. God had destined that which caused humanity to stumble. All the things found in the previous chapters would not be able to stand against God, ultimately showing their worthlessness. Thus, that God has destroyed human pride, and the things which tempt us with their assurance shows he is greater than they are. And once they have been destroyed, they will never again be rebuilt. It is because of this destruction that people who were once against God now glorify him. The cities which were full of evil now turn toward God in fear and awe. The fear here is a healthy fear of the Lord which brings wisdom. Indeed, God is worthy of all honor and praise, not only for his strength in defeating his enemies, but also in his holy character. He is able to sustain the people, those who are poor and the needy in distress. Those who struggle, if they place their faith in God, they find strength. Indeed, God is a shelter in the storms and shade in the heat. Here we have two extremes. And in both cases, God is able to sustain those who place their faith in him. This poetic imagery is used to describe the ruthless, the strong against the weak who seek to dominate. How can the weak, the poor, the needy stand against those who are so powerful? The answer is God, for he subdues those who would oppress his people. If they are the scorching heat, then he is the cloud that shades his people. Though the strong of the world sing songs of victory, in the end their song will be displaced by one who is far greater than they. Now we come on to verses 6, and we'll continue from there. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food for full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." So verse 6 continues the thought with that which is particular with something more universal. We notice it is this mountain that the Lord makes the feast. This mountain is specifically Zion. It is from this place that all people will come to gather and to be fed. That all people are said shows that God's salvation is far more reaching than just one nation or one people group. Ultimately, God will save many from many nations, many peoples. Verses 7 through 8 describes the real issue with humanity. Indeed, it is a problem we have seen with humanity since Genesis 3. The covering, the veil, which we all must face at one point. There is no one who escapes the funeral veil. All peoples, all nations experience the pangs of sin, which is death. But we find God is the one who will take away the curse. He will swallow up death forever. The greatest enemy of all will be no match for God. Instead, he will defeat it once and for all. And once it is defeated, it will remain so forever. 
We also notice how God is described in his action. He is a God who is a conqueror. He is God who is a stronghold. But he is also a God who is incredibly personal with his people. He will wipe away the tears which have been shed. He is going to take away the sorrow which occurs with death and all the effects of human sinfulness. So often the people of God are mocked for their faith in him. In the end though, his people will no longer cry, no longer mourn, no longer be ridiculed for their faith. Instead, God will show himself as he really is. And those who refuse to see the majesty of God will find their mouths shut against God's people whom they previously mocked and scorned. Isaiah has full confidence that all of this will come to pass because the Lord has spoken. He knows what God has accomplished. So if God has said it will occur, then there is no reason to doubt his word. Now we come to the final verses of the chapter. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. All of this will culminate in the praise and the adulation of God. On that day references the day of deliverance of God's people. That they proclaim so deeply, this is our God. Shows the relationship between God and his people is fully realized. They had been patient. Trusting in his word. Trusting that he will accomplish what he said he would. This trust, this faith. This patience is not in vain. He has done it. He has conquered their enemies. The greatest of which is death. And as such they rejoice in him. Again Zion is specified in the place of God's rest. Yet this same God who provides rest and salvation for his people. Is also the same God who tramples Moab. Moab here represents the world who had mocked God's people. The Moabites brought reproach on the Israelites. And so God breaks them down to the point of refuse. The image of the Moabites, or in this case the nations, the peoples of the world, who brought this reproach, spreading out their hands and swimming in dung, is an interesting way to put it. But it is meant to convey the fact that all they had to offer is nothing more than refuse. They attempted to subvert God and his ways, but in the end... It was all for nothing. Though they had boasted so greatly in themselves, we find them brought low, and they will continue to reach for the dunghills, continue to swim in it, because they refuse to acknowledge God. Thus, the fortifications of the proud, the supposed strength of the nations, are eradicated. That which sought to usurp God cannot stand against the might of God. It will face judgment. And it will be destroyed before a holy, righteous, and mighty God. So the main point of these verses, they describe the joy which will come for those who have placed their faith in God. Though they had been oppressed, 
they continue to believe in God and his word. In the end, God will be victorious over the nations. Indeed, death itself. And those who place their faith in God will rejoice over all he has accomplished. Those, however, who continue in pride will be crushed by the might and the power of God Almighty. So, Isaiah has continually shown us what it means to have faith in God. He has shown the repercussions of lacking faith in God and instead placing our trust and our faith in the world. Isaiah has shown that such placement of faith leads to devastation. While the world claims if we follow its power, its wisdom, its wealth, its vision, then it will lead to a better society. In the end, Isaiah has shown it only leads to sorrow and misery. One can imagine it is hard to be a prophet sometimes. By looking at the society and seeing its ills, it can be overwhelming to recognize what will happen as people continue to follow the darkness. It can be demoralizing to realize just how sinful people can be, how blind, and how easily deceived by what is around us. One understands in light of this how Isaiah could last chapter not join in the song, knowing all the reality of the pain around him. Yes, it can be hard to be the prophet. But God does not leave his prophets without hope. No, God provides them with something great to sustain them in their calls to proclaim the truth to the nations. What does he provide? The answer is himself. Indeed, it is the knowledge of God which sustains the prophet in times of darkness. It is knowing God which gives the prophet strength to be able to take one step in front of the other. To proclaim the truth, regardless of the societal repercussions which might occur and will occur. This is what Isaiah clings to in this passage. The fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God, Isaiah's God. Isaiah knows this God personally. He has experienced God. And it is his experience with God which sustains him not only in his prophetic ministry, but in all of his life. It is because Isaiah knows God that he can praise and adulate his name as being so great and mighty. The knowledge of God, the experience we have with God, is not something which can be ever understated. Far too often we forget that the greatest blessing God has given to us is knowledge of himself. If we had no knowledge of God, then what would it matter if he existed or not? Indeed, if God had not provided information which would allow us to attain it when it comes to knowing him, then not only would the universe have no purpose, but our very lives would be meaningless. Instead of this, however, we have true experiences with God. And we can attain true knowledge of God. He has provided these things for us. He steps down into our dark darkness to provide us a great light. He has accomplished great things in this world, both with and without us, and in doing so, has revealed himself. It is that God has acted, which causes Isaiah to be able to have such affirmation in his faith. Indeed, Isaiah in this passage shows us the true definition of biblical faith. In our time today, we have taken a very sad view of faith. It is almost worthless when one considers it has no real basis. We are told true faith just leaps blindly. Yet the biblical faith of the patriarchs, of the prophets, of the apostles was not blind. 
It was based upon God acting in the world and revealing himself to them in reality. They were able to follow him because they experienced him in their lives. He is not only the God of all the universe, he is also their personal God in history. The personal God of their lives. As such, when Isaiah proclaims what we have heard today, he can do so with incredible assurance. He can do so believing that if God has spoken it, then it will surely come to pass. He is able to have such conviction in the message because God has already done so much. And the knowledge of what God has accomplished enables Isaiah to trust, to have reasonable faith in what God will accomplish. As it is, this passage in Isaiah has been fulfilled in part, hasn't it? The great enemy of humanity is death. The separation of body and soul, this disconnect from what we are meant to be. Death occurs because of sinfulness, as Paul says. The wages of sin is death. Yet what do we find? We find in this passage that God will swallow death. He will take death and crush it beneath his feet. He will take that which is and undo it. The city described in this passage, in last week's passage, represents the world and the waves of the world which seek to undermine the power of God, enticing us to choose it rather than him. It is human sinfulness which God first destroys, the pride of man, which would seek to place ourselves, our concepts, our idols, above the everlasting and eternal Lord of all. It is that which leads to death and devastation. And here we find conquering both the city and the repercussions of living in that city. For Isaiah, this was a time away from him. For us, however, we know that the word of the Lord is sure. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was crucified. He died and was buried. Then on the third day, he arose. Death was defeated in Jesus Christ. He now lives and will live forever. Death has been conquered in Christ, and it will be conquered at his return completely. Indeed, Paul discusses this very thing in 1 Corinthians 15, the great argument of the resurrection. And he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of To God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
We live in this reality. Christ is risen. Death is undone in Christ. If this is the case, and if God has swallowed death in Christ, then what do we have? We have the same assurance of Isaiah when he says, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. He promised to do it. And he has accomplished this through his son, Jesus Christ. But if that is the case, then we must also take into consideration the reality of the fallen city and the destruction which occurs with the wicked. Those who continue to place their faith in themselves or the powers of this world will find destruction in the end. It is as sure an ending for those as it is that Christ has risen. Those who continue to trust in their own assurances will find those assurances cast asunder. The world is a dark place. It is filled with fallacies. It takes the truth and distorts it. It causes us to stumble. It seeks to hinder, hurt, and to destroy. The world, in this sense, the powers discussed throughout Isaiah thus far, are worthy of such judgment from God because of the natural destruction which they bring by their own merit. We see it in our society even now as the truth is distorted and lies permeate all we encounter and how that leads to further devastation. It is no wonder then that the result of the judgment is not mourning for the city, but rejoicing in God's justice and righteousness. Once we understand the results of sin in this world, we begin to understand why it is so important for God to not only be loving, but just. When we consider all the evils, all the spiritual darkness, all the hate and distortions, it should cause in us not a feeling of worry or apathy, but of a desire for righteousness and justice to be brought upon this dark world. So it is, Isaiah presents us with these two realities found in knowing God. The first is that this knowledge that we do and will taste, see, and know that our God is good. He is and will be our comfort, our shelter, our portion, our deliverer. He does and will wipe away all of our tears. Yet the second knowledge is that he also comes as the destroyer of all evils. Thus the warning God will not allow evil to win forever. He will not allow human beings the ability to continue their devastation forever. There will come a time when his justice will be unveiled. And all that is evil will be destroyed and discarded as refuse. This world is a dark world true. Oftentimes it is easy to get lost in the darkness. But we know our God is sure. And his promise is sure. And his word is sure. Out of all people, we have every reason to hope, to keep faith, to continue on in love. Why? Because our God has accomplished so much already. He has accomplished the impossible through his son. If he has, a, has promised to be with us in our faithfulness, then what more can we do than be faithful to him who has already fulfilled so many promises? To this then we turn. We turn to further knowledge of God. We turn to the fact that he exists and he has spoken and he acts in this world. We look forward to the day when all the pain and the suffering is ended. 
And we place our faith in this God not blindly, but knowing he is capable, for his accomplishments are vast, and his salvation is great, and it is mighty. Now, naturally, this leads to the gospel. I mean, it's, in my mind, (laughs) how do you not see the gospel in this particular passage of Isaiah? Um, Especially since gospel means good news, right? Um, But the gospel, I mean, the origins of humanity, that's where it all begins. If if there's no people here, then there's no gospel, right? Um, If there's no God, then there's no gospel. But the truth is, is that there is a God, and he does exist, and he has created human beings to bear his image. And this is a beautiful thing. You know, naturalists, I say this a lot, and it's, I, it's because I see it so much pain in what naturalism brings, which is the idea that we're just here by matter plus time plus chance. What a low view of humanity. What a low view. I mean, that just means you mean nothing. That means that you have no purpose, no meaning, no value. How sad. And yet, this is what the world continues to tell us. And if you have no meaning or purpose or value, then what's the point of it all? But what does Christianity teach? You are made in the image of God. You have worth, you have value, you have purpose to life. How amazing a thing to consider. Especially when you consider all the universe and you think just how unlikely it is in the end, how you could exist. And yet here you are. You exist. How amazing. How truly marvelous is our God to create people like us. To have free will. The ability to follow after him. To love and to cherish and all the good things. But how evil is free will when it is broken. How dark the devastation of the city of the world. How dark is sin that would cause death and destruction all around it. And that is what we see. We see it in Isaiah's passage with the Moabites who were the mockers representing all the world who mock God and mock his people. We also see it in the cities which we have already seen how all of it leads to destruction in the end. And why do you continue to follow it world? Why? And we see it in sinfulness when it comes to ourselves. I mean, every time we sin against someone else, guess what it causes? Destruction in that relationship. When are we going to learn that sin only causes pain? Sin only causes death. Death when it comes to the separation of our body and soul, true, but also death in our relationships. Death in regards to who we are around us. Death to the world. Sin is no small thing. And yet the world continues to say, oh, it's okay. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is worthy of every kind of judgment. And the problem is we are too then because we are sinners. You and I, who are meant for so much more than this world offers us, continues to follow the world and we deserve the judgment ourselves. We sin, we lie, we have done it. Every once in a while, I like to ask those questions. How many of you have sinned against God? (laughs) How many of you have lied, stolen? How many of you have murdered? And I always like to trick people with that one because Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, it's as though you murdered them. How many times have you done that? (laughs) We all have. 
We're all worthy of judgment. We can't attain this on our own. So the question is, if we are so worthy of judgment, if we belong in that city as the fire rains down around us, how do we get out? The answer is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. He lives now and forever. He swallowed death and he destroyed it. And he says, follow me to life. Life not only eternally, life in your relationships, life with your fellow human beings, life with God himself. It starts today in your faith. Not later, now. And we get to follow the truth of Jesus Christ because he has risen and he does reign. How do we know that? Because we experience him. Isn't it interesting? As soon as I say Jesus Christ, everyone here knows who I'm talking about. It's not even just a mental thing. It's like a presence. You know this person. You might not see him clearly, but you know him. You could picture him. You could spot him. You could say, that's him. Every single one of us has the same feeling when we say, Jesus Christ. How is that possible? It's possible because he reigns. It's possible because he's alive today. And he's going to be alive forever. And if he has promised that he's coming back, and if he has promised that those who believe in him will have eternal life, guess what? We will. The prophet had that faith. Why? Because he saw what God has done. We have as well. And where does it all lead? Well, for those who continue to say, I prefer the dung heap, it leads to destruction. And in our world today, we see quite the dung heap. <laughs> Look around us. Our society is crumbling with power. A false power. They say that they have it all. They say that if we just follow after them, then you know all society's ills will be fine. No, it won't. We've seen it in the past. It'll still be the same thing because human beings are not worthy to be followed because we're all sinners. God, however, is. You know, as time has gone on more recently, I've just continued to say, Lord, I thank you for your promises because this world is a disaster. But I don't worry. Do you want to know why? Christ reigns. And yes, we fight for truth. We proclaim the truth. To the world. And we certainly must not ever delay or stop ourselves or silence ourselves. But in the end, our hope isn't here. Our hope is above. And he's coming back. And he's going to destroy all the darkness. So me, I'm not really worried. I look at it and I say, yeah. God's conquered greater than this. He's conquered death. And that's where we're get to go in his glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah, whom you gave these words of proclamation to, that we would know who the Savior is when he comes. Lord, you have done so much in our lives. You have given us this assurance that your son, Jesus Christ, is truly the king. And he reigns. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom in this world to be able to understand, be able to see the truth and to proclaim the truth around us. And that if we should ever have to fight, that it would be fighting for what is righteous and just and good. 
And Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us ever onward into your glory. That we would be given the strength to be faithful. Because faithfulness, Lord, leads more into you and your glory. And you have promised that should we remain faithful, no matter what the circumstances, that you will be there in the end. So Lord, let us cling to your promises. Let us cling to your word. And let us only and ever trust in you because you are worthy of our trust and our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I thank